The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Let's talk about baptism for a second. Baptism is an opportunity for you to profess your faith in the Savior before your brothers and sisters. If you've not been baptized since you've known Christ as Savior, I strongly encourage you to prayerfully consider doing that. Maybe you're baptized as an infant. That's a great statement of your parents' faith, but maybe it's time for you to confess your own faith. Or maybe you were baptized before you came to faith in Christ, and now you've since come to faith in the Savior. It's a great opportunity to do that. There's a meeting this afternoon, and then there's a meeting on Wednesday evening. I need to have you attend one of those meetings to uh, get information about it. So uh, if you haven't been baptized, I would strongly ask you to prayerfully consider following God's instructions for us to do that. And uh, we're going to do baptism a little differently this year. We're going to actually do it here on premises. Uh, we're going to bring in some type of a tank or something and do it uh, following third service on August the 30th and uh, baptize here and make it a big celebration for as many of us are worshiping. So a little different uh, venue for us to do it. Uh, the new building we're building will have an outdoor baptismal. And so uh, we'll do some at the creek, perhaps still some here. Uh, we just want more opportunities, more venues to be able to do that. So uh, if you haven't been baptized since you've come to know Christ as Savior, Prayerfully consider if the Savior is asking you to do it. We do ask if kids are under 10 that uh, they come and observe, and then when they reach 10, uh, from that time on, we'll be glad to participate in that event. For the month of August, we're going to be doing a short series I've entitled uh, Then and Now. You can see it on the top of your outlines, Then and Now. And I'm hoping what we can do is learn today from looking at yesterday's struggles. And not exactly yesterday, but uh, millenniums ago in the nation of Israel. We look at their culture compared to our culture and uh, think about how we can grow and how we can change. You can see behind me on the screen, uh, there's a contrast between ancient Israel and modern-day America, and we're going to talk about today the collapse of a culture, the collapse of a culture. Let's pray. Father, I I pray for grace. I I pray that as we begin this little brief series that uh, we'll be in the Word together on over the next few weeks that you would teach us. Uh, Father, we recognize our land is in trouble. We recognize that surrounding us is uh, a lot of struggles, and we as a church, we as a people, want to engage that. And so we pray that you teach us in the weeks ahead. In the name of Jesus, amen. How do we get here, guys? How do we get here? I mean, you take a look at our world, you take a look at our culture, you take a look at our nation, you take a look at many churches in our nation, and you've got to ask the question, as I've been asking, I'm sure as you've been asking, how in the world do we get here? I mean, how do we get in this mess? I, I think of some of the things that our culture, our society is facing right now, and we've got, how do we get to the point when same-sex marriage is widely accepted? How do we get there? How, how do we get to the point where we call this a hero and courageous? I mean, how, how do we get there? How, how do we get there when we see that uh, uh, the, the, the videos that you saw and I saw this past week when abortion has become a mega billion dollar industry. In fact, I pointed out for you a world population clock a few weeks back, I think five or six weeks ago. Uh, you can Google up uh, abortion counter. And if you do that, you're going to find these statistics. In the United States today, there'll be, there have been 1,897 abortions. This was on Friday, actually. Since Roe versus Wade 1973, 58 million babies have been aborted. And the statistics go on in our world. If you look at that, one billion babies aborted since 1980, where abortion has become really a a, a means of contraception. 
I mean, we live in a society, we live in a world, and we have to ask the question, how did we get here? How did we get here? How did we get here with the proliferation of pornography? I mean, if you look at some of the stats on pornography, porn sites comprise 12% of the Internet. You think of all the websites on the Internet. I mean, you Google something up and it says there are 1.2 million websites that will take you to whatever it is. I did Fear of God this past week, 1.2 million websites. 12% of all the Internet pornography. 25% of search engine requests. One quarter of all search engine requests for pornography. 50% of pastors look at pornography regularly. 38% of adults say pornography is morally acceptable. Every second, 28,000 people view pornography. Every minute, $184,000 are spent on pornography. That's in America alone. How did we get here? I mean, do you ever ask that question? Do you look around our world and our culture that we live in and say, how in the world did we get here? And then the follow-up question is, what are we going to do about it? I mean, how do we get here and what are we going to do about it? How do we get here and what are we doing about it? I mean, when, when I look at the culture we live in, you throw in things like sex slavery, you throw in things like racism, and on and on, and we have to ask the question, how did we get here? The nation of Israel has had to be asking that question in the time of the judges. They had to ask the question, how did we get here? Because in the book of Judges, what we find is the rejection and turning away from God and worshiping other gods. We find the assassination of leaders. We find incompetent leadership. We find blatant immorality. We find spiritual leaders, specifically priests, compromising truth for financial gain and for financial security. There was a saying in the time of the judges, and it's found six times in the book of Judges, and what this saying says is there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I would submit to you that that reflects the attitude of our culture. There's no king in the land. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Hey, if it feels good, do it. That came all the way back in the 60s, and now it's like uh, tolerance is the buzzword, and if you're not tolerant, then obviously you are a bigot or you are, you fill in the blank. But in the book of Judges, six times we read this verse. In fact, if you write in your Bibles, go to the very last verse in the book of Judges or open your apps. Let's open our Bibles and apps to Judges right now. And you're going to find the very last verse in Judges is this very verse. Six times in the book it occurs. In those days, there was no king of the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so what we find is a culture that resembles our culture in some ways, a, a culture that was out of control, a culture that's rejecting God, a culture filled with rampant immorality, a culture that was spiritually bankrupt. I submit to you the culture of our nation and the culture of Israel in the time of the judges had many parallelisms. And I submit to you that there's hope for us. I want you to walk away from this series with great hope. And the hope is found in the gospel. Amen? The hope is found in the gospel. The hope is found there. I'm as concerned as you are about the direction we're headed and things are happening. And so I'm going to submit to you that our hope is found in the gospel only. This morning, there are many things we could look at, but this morning we're going to look at Judges chapter 2 primarily, and we're going to pick out three things that help to destroy the culture of Israel, and then we're going to look at three corresponding solutions to how we might impact the culture ourselves. So fasten your seatbelts. That's where we're headed this morning. Uh, that's what we're going to do. How do you destroy a culture? 
Well, the nation of Israel destroyed the, their culture in Judges by compromising and obeying God's word. They compromised in obeying God's word. God had specifically spoken to the nation of Israel, when you enter the promised land, there are certain things you can do. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to pop it up on the screen in a second. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he said, when you enter into the promised land, there are some things that you have to do. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, that's all the ites that live in the land, the Canaanites, etc. He says, when the Lord your God delivered them over to you, you defeated them, then you must destroy them how much? Not partially, not a little bit, but totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not what? What's the word say? You're going to work with me today. Do not, you can read it, intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in fire. So God says when you go into the promised land, there's some things you have to do. Number one, you have to destroy all the pagan people there. These are pagan prostituting people who are worshiping false gods, and if you allow the people to dwell in the land, if they stay in the land, you're going to begin to worship the gods that they have because your boys are going to marry their girls, and once that happens, their children and your children are begin to worship their gods. And so the first thing you have to do is you've got to destroy them. Second thing you, can't, you cannot do, you cannot let them intermarry because once your sons and daughters intermarry with these Canaanites and all the ites there, they're going to embrace their gods. And by the way, you've got to get rid of all their gods. You've got to break down their altars, smash their stones, cut down their poles, and burn their idols in the fire. You've got to get rid of everything there. These are pagan people who have turned their hearts from me. They're not following me. They're reprobate people, and they're godless, child-sacrificing, prostituting, reprobate Canaanites. You've got to stay away from their worship. You've got to stay away from their women, and you've got to stay away from their world. That's what Deuteronomy 7 says. So the nation of Israel invades the promised land led by Joshua the general. They get in the promised land, and things are going pretty well. In fact, Judges chapter 1 records that for us. They went in and they drove out, they drove out, they drove out, they drove out. But things change in verse 19. Judges chapter 1, verse 19. Up until this time, they were obeying the command of God. They were driving out the people who were there. They were getting rid of their idols, etc., etc. And it says in verse 19 of Judges 1, Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but... In my Bible, I've got a big circle around the word, but I've got a slash in my Bible because this is where things start to go awry. Up until now, it's been obedience, 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 following the commands of Deuteronomy 7. It says, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. And so they come up against a great opponent and they really stop fighting is what happens. They stop driving them out of the land. They, they meet with opposition. They've got iron chariots. They're afraid to continue in battle. Even though God has promised them victory, they stop doing it. And once they stop, they're in trouble because look at verse 21. But the sons of Benjamin did not what? They did not drive out the Jebusites. And so they stopped doing what they had been tasked to do, what they were told to do by God. Then if you write in your Bibles, underline those words. Verse 27, Manasseh did not, did not take possession of Beth Shean. So there's a problem. They didn't take possession of that. Then in verse 
29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kidron, verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo, in verse 32, at the end of the chapter, or end of the verse. They did not drive them out, verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, verse 35. The Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris. And so what we see is everything's gone hunky-dory. Nation of Israel is visiting God, doing what they should do. They're driving out the inhabitants of the land. They're taking care of getting rid of the idols and everything else, but then they stopped, period. Obedience, 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 and they stopped obeying. And things changed. Things changed. How did they change? Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, the angel, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I had sworn to your fathers. And I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down the altars. We just read all that in Deuteronomy 7. But you have not obeyed me. I I made this covenant with you. I I told you I'm a jealous God, and I I told you to go in the land and get rid of all that's there, and you stopped obeying. You listened, you listened, you listened, you did, you did, you did. You followed, you followed, you followed, but then you stopped. Like a child who is disobedient to a parent's instruction, the nation of Israel did not listen to their father. They listened, but they did what they wanted. Anybody ever have kids like that? I'm sure my kids and my grandkids are the only ones that are like that. I mean, you look at your son or your daughter, you give them instructions, and you say, this is what I'd like for you to do. And they nod, and they say yes, and they don't do it. I look at my grandkids sometimes and say, this is what Papa don't want you to do. And they nod, and they listen, and they do what they want to do. Same thing we do with God. Same thing Nation of Israel did with God. I, I ran across this picture. It reminds me of exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> do not climb, play on, around, uh, uh, do not climb, play on, and around pipe. Uh, I don't know who translated that, but it's a, it's a poor translation. Comes out of, uh, I forget which country it was. I got it on Google. But anyway, you look at that. That, that. Those are a bunch of kids on the pipeline. Don't do it. And here they are doing it. They probably can't read the sign because it's English. But this picture reminds me of what the nation of Israel was doing. This picture reminds me of what we do. God says, be warned, be warned, be warned. Don't do this. If you do this, you're going to marry their kids. You're going to worship their gods. If you don't obey me, this is what's going to happen. And guess what happened? It's exactly what they did. Exactly what they did. They began to compromise obeying God's word. When I look at our world, when I look at our culture, when I look at many churches in our nation, I see compromise in obeying God's word. Compromise. What's the greatest compromise today? I I turn to that great theologian, Charles Schultz. He was the writer of the Peanuts cartoon strip when he was alive. And in the Peanuts cartoon strip, you you know the whole great pumpkin thing where at Halloween there's a great pumpkin and stuff and Linus loves the great pumpkin. And so Linus is defending his belief in the great pumpkin. And this is what he says. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. I submit to you that's the theology 
of the street today and it's the theology of many churches today. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That theology gets you a quick ticket to hell. That's what it'll do. It does matter what you believe, my friend. All the sincerity in the world and you're not trusting in Jesus doesn't matter. You're sincerely wrong. But I submit to you that is the culture we live in. That is the culture of the church we live in. That's the culture of not Temple Bible Church, but the church in America particularly. It's a culture that, uh, of the street right now. It's a culture that says, hey, believe what you want to believe, just be sincere about it. The church bought this lie in the early 20th century. Let me give you a little American church history. You ready? What happened is we were founded by the Puritans, as you well know, and they were very conservative in their theology. And so they worshiped God, they loved God, they, they believed in the air and see the scriptures, they believed in the fundamentals of faith that we believe in. And things ticked along pretty well until the late 1800s. In the late 1800s, liberalism became that which was renowned in the seminaries of Europe, particularly seminaries of Germany. And many of our, our, our people in the academy would be trained there and come back and teach in America. And so you have schools like Harvard and Princeton and Yale, the, the Ivy League schools, they were founded as conservative Christian institutions to train men to go out and preach the gospel. Did you know that? I mean, that's what they were trained for. They were conservative bastions of Christianity. But what happened is that the, the liberalism and the theology of the, the seminaries in Europe, specifically in Germany at that time, it became so profound that many for our academies went there to be trained and came back and taught in the academies and in the, in the university systems and seminaries, that, that that became the standard of the academy. And who are they teaching in the seminaries? They're teaching pastors. And so in the late 1800s, you're getting that infiltration from overseas. And then what happens next is it's taught by professors in seminaries. And that took place in the early 1900s. Well, the seminaries were training whom? Who gets trained in seminaries? People like me, pastors. And so it passed from the seminary to the pastor to the pew. And so what you find is a decline of mainline denominations that began really in the 1940s because that's when it hit the pew. It, it took a generation for it to go on. And so what you find in most mainline denominations, embracing of a liberal gospel where the word of God is not true, where truth is relative, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in it. And that's dead wrong. If you don't stand up on the truth of God's word, you're going to destroy a culture. If you don't obey God, you're going to destroy a culture. If you don't obey God, you're going to destroy yourself. So in American history, we see the demise that took there. We see the historical slide that has taken place. That compromise has led to truth that is relative. Because in our nation, what we say is, there's no king in the land. And everyone can do what is right in their own eyes. And so you end up with the things that I popped up on the screen earlier. That's how we got there. When truth becomes relative... When the scriptures are no longer valid and accepted as God's word, then, then we find a nation that turns away from the Savior. And we walk in disobedience rather than obedience. So what are the consequences? Well, look at the nation of Israel's consequences. Verse 3. Therefore, I've said, I will not drive them out before you. I'm not going to drive these people out. I told you I would, but now you stop, so I'm not. But they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. You're going to begin to follow their gods because I warned you that was going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Turn to verse 20. 
Chapter 2 of Judges. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He said, because the nations transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So God says, I want you to know because you've turned your backs on me, because you've rejected me, because you no longer follow me, because you don't obey me, you've disobeyed, and I am no longer that which is important to you, you're going to suffer consequences. Let me stop for a second. Some of you are applauding on the inside right now. Finally, Gary is ripping into our culture and the sins of our nation. And, and you're thinking it's about time. But some of you aren't going to be satisfied. You're not going to be satisfied unless I walk on the political edge and call you to militant action. Others of you are seething on the inside because we're even talking about this right now. But it's clearly in the Word of God. And so when we look at this, let me just state a few things about TBC. Number one, we have and we always will address biblical issues. If in the scriptures we're going to teach it, we're not going to invent things, we're not going to pull things out of the air. We're going to do with the biblical, we're going to address biblical issues as they're there. Number two, we have and we always will speak the truth without compromise. We're not going to walk in the quicksand of culture. We're going to stand upon the promises of God's word, the truth of God's word. Number three, we have and we always will love the lost who are held captive by Satan and we're going to offer them the gift of salvation. The lost are not our enemies, my friends. The lost were us. And one of the things I I, I struggle with in the evangelical church is we hate the unbeliever. The unbeliever is held captive by an enemy. I was there. You were there. You can't hate the unbeliever. You have to love the unbeliever. You have to have a heart that mourns for their sin. Be broken over their sin. We have and we always will evangelize by engaging our culture. Not by embracing our culture as many have done. But we will evangelize by engaging our culture. We have and we always will call the prodigal to repentance. We have and we always will exhort and encourage believers to live a life of obedience. Because the scriptures tell us if you love me you're going to keep my commandments. Jesus said that himself. You don't have to be a social scientist, a sociologist to realize our cultures, we're in, we're in the midst of a tremendous decline morally. I mean, it's, it's awful. We all know that. I, but some of us are held captive. Some of us are like, this is, it's cartoon day here. Uh, this is Gary Lawson, Larson, the far side. It's a little ant bringing an anteater home. He says, Mom, Dad, he followed me home. Can we keep him? Some of us have done that with culture. Rather than engaging culture, we've embraced culture and we look like the world. We'll never impact a culture that way. Never. When we are no different from the world, we're going to struggle. So the solution to all that is we have to conform our behavior to God's word. We have to conform our behavior to God's word. If we want to begin to impact a culture... If we want to begin to change a culture, we begin to change the culture of our region, of our state, of our nation, of our world, it begins with us conforming our behavior that is walking in obedience to God's word. That's how it starts. You see, Israel looked good on the outside, but then it was morally corrupt and dead on the inside. They stopped. They stopped obeying God. That became the problem. There are many places I can go to show you how we should conform our lives to, to, to God's word. First uh, Samuel chapter 15. I'm just going to share with you a quick story. I'll pop a verse up on the screen in a second. You don't have to turn there. It's a story of the first king of Israel's history. Who's the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul's the first king of Israel. You remember they picked him not because of his spirituality. They picked him why? 
Tall, dark, and handsome. That's why they picked him. We want a good-looking king. We want to ride on the horse in front of the parade and lead our nation like all the other nations, it says in 1 Samuel. And so Saul comes to power. And when he comes to power, one of the first things he's do is to go up against the Amalekites. So God says this in 1 Samuel 15, 3, go and strike the Amalekites, utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. And so they go into battle, and it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, the best of the ox, the best of the fat ones, the best of the lamb, all that was good, they were not willing to destroy it. And so Samuel, the godly prophet, comes on the scene, and he says, What is this thing you have done? He was distressed, and he cried out to the Lord all night long. And Samuel goes to Saul, and he says, uh, What is this thing you have done? He says, We built a monument. Actually, Saul built a monument for himself, is what it says. And Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, Lord, I've carried out God's command. Well, yes and no. God said, I don't destroy, he kept some stuff. Built a monument to himself. Samuel, the godly prophet, says, If you've kept God's command, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He says, You said you've done it all, but I hear, I hear all these sounds. You have not obeyed. You haven't done what God has asked you to do. And so Samuel the prophet looks at Saul, and this is the word that God gives to him. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice much in obeying the Lord? To obey has been sacrifice, to heed has been the fat of rams. What Saul is being told by Samuel is, quit your religion, burnt offerings and sacrifices, and obey God. That's what brings him joy. May I submit to you that what's happened to the church, what's happened to the American culture is that the church has played religion and not obeyed God. It's on us. We want to say it's on the homosexual. We want to say it's on the politician. We want to say it's on the transgender person. We want to say it's on, it's on us. Us. You see, when we live lives that don't look any differently from the world, it's on us. And the problem in our culture there are multitude, but I think one of the greatest reasons, because we've played religion and not walked in obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of lambs. To walk in obedience is better than the fat of lambs. Do what God tells you to do. Don't negotiate. Don't bargain. Don't complain. Don't gripe. Young people, conform your behavior to the image of God. Young single, conform your behavior to the image of God. Young couple, conform your behavior to the image of God. Grandpas and grandmas like me, conform your behavior to the image of God. Don't complain, don't gripe, obey. Too many of us are like the young boy named Johnny. Teacher told Johnny, Johnny, sit down. Johnny stood up. She said, Johnny, I said, sit down. Johnny stood up. Finally, she walked over and Johnny sat down. He stayed there, but when she walked away, he said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. My fear is that's the way many of us live the life. You know, you want to know how to change the world? I mean, what we're saying is that the, the, the first major issue, you want to destroy a culture, compromise and obeying God's word. The way to combat that is by obedience. It's personal surrender. It's not by starting a political action committee. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not by being involved in politics. And I'm glad for people who are believers. I loved hearing the testimony of men who stood up for Jesus the other night. 
I, 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 it, it's, it's not by becoming all these other things. It begins, the begin, don't mishear me, I'm for those things. I want our people running for office. I want you leading in our community. I, I want you putting together a community. I want you doing those things. But it begins with our personal, when we look like Jesus, when we walk in obedience, we begin to change a culture because we look so different in the world. When we don't, we struggle. You know, in our core values, we say at the very center, that's personal surrender. Me surrendering my life to Jesus today. Me surrendering my life to Jesus tomorrow. Me surrendering my life to Jesus the next day. When you surrender your heart, your life to the Savior, to do what God wants you to do, you stand out in a world that walks away from him. Let me tell you what I found in my own life. It's easy to rant, rave, and scream about other people's sins that are not my own. Anybody else have that experience? See, you haven't heard too many sermons up here on gluttony, have you? I bet 600 of you posted on my Facebook thing that Bluebell is being produced in Alabama. I mean, literally, you go there, you're going to say boom, 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 all over. Look here, what you preach on gluttony? Follow me through a buffet line sometimes, you'll know why. Total lack of self-control. See, it's easy for us to rant and rave and scream about other people's sins, but not look in the mirror at our own. And that's the problem. Let, Let me put it this way, and I wrote these in my notes. I want to read them because I want to be very careful about what I say. Let me give you some examples. It's easy to scream, rant, and rave about same-sex marriage. It is wrong. It is sinful. And by God's grace at TBC, we will never do a same-sex marriage. But then we divorce like there's nothing wrong with it. There is biblical cause for divorce, so if you've been through that, I'm not talking to you. But if we divorce without warrant, even though we know God hates it, Malachi, and do it, aren't we just as wrong? We scream, we rant, we rave about homosexuality. It is wrong. It is sinful. We will never condone it. God's word is clear about it. But then we're involved in adultery, fornication, premarital sex, pornography, like there's nothing wrong with it. I'll give you another example. We scream, we rant, we rave about radical Islamists and their hatred for everyone. It is wrong. It is sinful. We'll never accept hatred, but then we are racist or filled with rage in our homes towards those that we should love. Like there's nothing wrong. And we rant and we rave and we scream about government spending and it is a mess. But our personal finances are out of control. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. But let me give you the hope. When you do love the man or woman God has given you, when you do exercise self-control, when you do look like Jesus, when you do live out the gospel, when you look like our Savior, when you do forgive, when you let go of bitterness, when you walk away from arguments, when you honor the Savior and love him and spend time in his word and you look like him and you love those kids God's given you and you worship the Savior and you give of your gener- generously to the Savior and his work and when you do those things, the world notices and it's changed. Let me give an example. This week, a lady comes in my office and she gave me her permission to use this. So Gary, we moved here several years ago. We didn't know Christ. We moved across the street from a couple, and we began to watch them. 
They had us over for dinner a couple of times. We didn't know that we were on their 10 most wanted list you talk about. And they begin to love us and they begin to care for us. And we watched the way this couple related to one another. We watched the way they reared their kids. But we watched the way that they, and listened to the way they talked about God and about Jesus, but not in a threatening way. And we're followers of Christ today because of them. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. You want to change a culture and change a world. It, talks, it starts with personal surrender and me walking with the Savior to impact those in my sphere of influence. And then they can impact those in their sphere of influence and the other sphere of influence and the next sphere of influence. Changing a culture starts with personal obedience and personal surrender every day. Now I've got a confession. I don't surrender easily. I don't surrender easily. I told one of my dear friends this week, I, you know, we had a little issue and I said, I, I, I've got to struggle with this person because they're stubborn. You know why I've got to struggle with that person? Because I'm stubborn. And I'm the only stubborn person in here I know. Right. Sometimes it's hard for me to surrender. It's hard for me to surrender at times. I love the honesty of a little four-year-old boy who wouldn't obey his dad and finally dad said, why don't you listen to me and do what I've asked you to do? And he said, daddy, I just don't want to. <laughs> well, you've got to like that honesty. I ran across a uh, classified ad in Milwaukee newspaper, uh, painfully honest. Free Yorkshire Terrier, eight years old. Hateful little dog. I mean, sometimes you just need to be honest. We need to be honest. You know, the battle here is me. I I won't surrender my life. I'm clinging on to stuff. I'm clinging on to things. I'm clinging on to whatever it might be you're clinging on to and won't let go. You'll never impact a culture for Christ if you're living this way, looking this way, and won't let go. So it begins with personal surrender. How do you impact a culture? You destroy a culture. You embrace other gods. That's what they did. They didn't destroy gods, they embraced gods. At the heart of Canaanite culture was a religious system of idolatry that was mostly an excuse for immorality. The central god was Baal, the god of rain, fire, and fertility. And so the Canaanites were involved in ritual, cult, prostitution. You go to their temples, be involved with prostitutes, somehow call that worship. And so it was just an immoral life. They, they ended up sacrificing the Baal, Baal, eventually Molech, which involved child sacrifice. And God has said, if you don't get rid of them, if you don't kick them out, you'll become like them, you'll worship their gods. And I'm sure they clucked their tongues and said, not us, not us, not us. But guess what happened? Pick up in verse 11. Then the sons of Israel, this is Judges 2, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the who? The Baals. And they forsook, that word means abandoned. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Israel. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them. They bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord God to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. So if you want to destroy a culture, you begin to worship other gods because when you give your heart to another God and you give your heart to other things, you'll never impact a culture for the gospel, period, ever. Not going to happen. God has warned the nation, you don't kick them out, They're going to become, you're going to become like them, you're going to abandon me, and that's exactly what they did. The purpose of the judges was to lead people back. Basically, if you tolerate Baal's people, you're going, to, you're going to worship their gods. My friends, we cannot embrace the world and the word at the same time. One author puts it this way, just like that. You can't embrace the pleasures of the world and the promises of the word at the same time. It doesn't happen. But let's face it, many of us are very comfortable in this world. We live comfortable lifestyles of affluence. 
We enjoy the things we have and we receive. And we really don't want to be ostracized by the world we live in. And so we've just embraced the culture. We don't look any different. It was uh, C.S. Lewis who said, you're either leaving your mark on the world or the world is leaving its mark on you. Which is it for you? Which is it? Which is it? Do you stand apart for Christ? People see that and recognize that? The way to overcome that is the exclusive worship of the true God. If we as a church are going to impact a culture, we're going to worship him and him alone. Individually and corporately, that's it. Tim Keller wrote an excellent book. Well, God says this, you shall know the gods before me. God also says do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. The, the subtitle, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power and the Only Hope That Matters. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, Manhattan. If you haven't read that book, it's worth picking up and looking at. It's an excellent read. Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. I've read it twice. I don't read books twice. <clears throat> it's an excellent read. In that book, Keller says this. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't have idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, like love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate beings. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. <clears throat> but many young women today are driven into depression, eating disorders by obsessive concern over body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice. You sacrificing your kids? No, me, I'd never do that. We exercise child sacrifice and neglect our families, neglect our communities to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. When your career replaces your family and your walk with God, you've sacrificed kids, period. Period. Not you, not me. I mean, I, you know, I gotta save the world. And the battle becomes when the world sees us and we live this way, we'll never change a culture. And, and so don't mishear what I'm saying. I love the fact that our folks are politically active. I love the fact that you're involved in things that are seeking to turn our world away from immorality to morality. I'm grateful for your involvement, your gifts to those things, your generosity to those things. But recognize the battle begins within. And until we are willing to face that and deal with it, we can do all types of external things, but nothing's going to change. Because only Jesus and the gospel can change a hurting world. The last thing they did is they overlooked God's directives regarding marriage. God's word was very clear. He told them not to marry them. He said, don't get involved with them. Don't marry them. Because if you marry them, it's going to be a problem. You're going to worship their gods. And so what happens? What do they do? Well, immediately they disobey God. They quit doing that. They disobey the word of God. Look at Judges chapter 3, verse 6. In Judges 3, 6, it says, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Direct disobedience to what God said. Direct disobedience. God has very clearly spelled it out. And so they overlooked God's directives regarding marriage. 
There's an area where God had spoken clearly. You marry their women. You're going to worship their gods. They violate it. How did it happen? Well, Levi shows up at home one day with a new girlfriend. She's a hot young thing. She's a real knockout, but there's a problem. She's a Canaanite. Ephraim's motor is revved up. His latest squeeze is blinded his eyes, compromised his heart. And he comes to his mom and daddy. He says, I'm doing a little missionary dating, if you will. And before long, he ends up marrying the one who's there. There's a Canaanite in the family. They overlook God's directives concerning marriage. If we're going to be a culture and a church that changes the world, by the way, in Genesis 2.24 regarding marriage, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Basically, that tells us that uh, marriage is monogamous, it's heterosexual, and it's for a lifetime. Scriptures are very clear on that. Make no mistake, God has not balked. God's word is clear, and it's not changing. That's what he said. Scriptures also say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Please don't come to us as a staff team with your unbelieving fiancé and want us to do your wedding. Please don't send your kids to us and ask us to marry them to an unbeliever. Why don't you just come and ask me to rob a bank? There's no difference. Sin is sin. Over the years, I've had numerous people show up in my office. They want to get married. One's a believer, one's an unbeliever, or... People have sent their kids to me, and uh, one's a believer, one's a non-believer. They get mad at me, and they leave. Just ask me to rob a bank. What's the difference? Really, what's the difference? Sin is sin. Is there any part of that you don't understand? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Is that a difficult command to understand? But yet we do it. Yet we do it. Um. He decreed for Jacob and established the law in Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach their children. You see, the next generation didn't learn the things of God, and because of that, they fell. They fell. They struggled, and they fell. You've got to initiate instruction to the next generation to overcome that. You know, they didn't teach the next generation. Last verse, then I'll quit. 2.10. All that nation was gathered to their fathers. There arose a generation after them that know the work of God or the work that he had done in Israel. Joshua and his generation died. The next generation turned his back on God. Joshua and his generation had walked through the Jordan River. Joshua's generation had seen the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. They had gone into Ai. They had done all this thing, and yet their sons and daughters did not know the things that God had done. How can that happen? Because they're so busy with their careers and planting fields and clearing land and fighting soldiers that they did important things, but they didn't do the essential thing, and it was to teach the next generation about God. ESPN, the magazine right now, has an article on Arian Foster. You know who Arian Foster is? One of the greatest running backs in the NFL right now. Played for the University of Tennessee, uh, grew up in uh, uh, New Mexico, and then moved out to uh, California, played for the University of Tennessee, and now he plays for the Houston Texans. He's a proclaimed atheist. He's just come out of the closet, he says, to proclaim his atheism so everybody can know about it. And you think, well, how does a young man get that way? He's 27 years old, I think. How does a young man become an atheist? Well, in the article, talks about, he talks about his dad's intellect and how his dad wanted his children to become free thinkers and find out what they believed in themselves so he never influenced them in the direction of their belief. And, you know, we trumpet that. Isn't that great? My kids are going to believe whatever they want. And I'm thinking, oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help us. How can you know Jesus and what he's done for us and that he's the savior of the world 
And how can you not tell your kids about the cross and the resurrection? How can you not tell them about a Savior? How can you not do that? So if we're going to save a culture, we have to instruct the next generation. And there's so much hope out there. I look at TBC week after week, all the young people God's given us, all the young families God's given us, there's hope out there. You're the hope of the next generation. We're the hope of the next generation. The gospel is the hope of the next generation. Don't give up. Don't be like chicken little and run. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. It is going to fall. I'll read the rest of the book, read Revelation. It's going to fall, but in the midst of that, shine brightly as a light for the Savior. Shine brightly. We impact our culture by being salt and light in the midst of darkness. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. One of the reasons Israel was ineffective and why their culture was destroyed, they compromised in obedience, they compromised in the family, they compromised in following God, they worshiped false gods, they conformed their behavior to the world rather than the ways of God. How'd we get here? How'd we get here? Same-sex marriage, transgender perversion, Abortion, proliferation of pornography, sex slavery, racism. How'd we get here? Just like Israel did. Just like Israel did. You quit obeying. You quit trusting. You quit worshiping. And everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And truth becomes relative. And the world becomes hellious. So what do we do? We don't run and hide. We don't live in fear. We don't rant and rave on social media. We invite the lost into our homes. We invite them to our worship services. We get politically active. We speak the truth in love. But more than anything else, more than anything else, we are Jesus. We look like him and we live like him. In a sin-soaked, saturated society that turns its back on them. And when we do that, we'll impact a culture. So if you're here today and you're clinging to something and you refuse to surrender it, I want to pray for you. You're clinging to something you won't submit to God, I want to pray for you. It may be a, a secret sin, it may be your stuff, it may be peace, it may be affluence, I don't know what you're pursuing. Maybe you're embracing an idol the idols that I quoted from Keller. Maybe you've disobeyed God's directive regarding marriage. Maybe you married an unbeliever. Maybe you've had a non-biblical divorce. Maybe you're in a battle right now considering leaving your husband or your wife. Pray for you. We don't want to look like the world. We want to look like Jesus. Because when we do, we can change a culture. Let's all stand together. Father, I pray for dear brothers and sisters right now that are clinging to things they refuse to submit to you. It may be a checkbook. It may be a child. It may be a a, a secret sin. It may be a desire they refuse to give that's wrong. Maybe it's the pursuit of power over pursuit of you. I pray for idols in our lives, Father. Idols, the idols of career. The idol is a stinking phone that we carry around with us that we're love more than we love anything else. The idols of knowledge, the idols of success, the idols of so many of them. And Father, I know there are folks here who've been divorced, not for biblical reasons. I pray for confession right now, repentance. And if restoration is possible, I pray for that. 
There are others who are married to unbelievers. They've disobeyed your word and done that, but you can forgive that and you can restore that marriage and prayerfully bring that unbeliever to Jesus. Others of us are marriages that don't honor you. Maybe we're not thinking about divorce, but you are not reigning supreme in our families. We confess that. We want to be a church, we want to be a culture, we want to be individuals that impact the world so that culture can change through the gospel. We love you.